It's good to be uh, back with you again. I wish I could say I recognize many of you, but it was about 10 years ago, so I have a short memory. Um, my wife would probably remember. She has a better memory of people's names and faces, but um, that's, it's good to be with you. Uh, let, let me just pray just for a moment. Let's pray. Father, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts, be acceptable in your sight, you who are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, if you see the title of the, the sermon, it's um, Ancient Future Worship. And I told Jen I was unabashedly, unashamedly stealing that uh, title from one of my former colleagues at Wheaton College, uh, Dr. Bob Weber. Uh, Bob died a few years ago. We had a great worship service that he put together uh, as his memorial. Uh, he was one of my first professors at Wheaton College um, last century, and, uh, and uh, he then became a colleague of mine. His office was next to mine. My favorite story of, about him is that one day in a cold, slushy Chicago morning, um, he came in, I came in to the office, and I said, well, Bob, this is the day the Lord has made. And Bob said, yeah, but he's done better. <laughs> Um, Bob was a great guy, but his, his expertise was worship. Uh, he thought a lot about worship, and I want to do that with you this morning, and I'm doing something a little different than I usually do in sermons that I preach, because uh, I usually uh, tear through a text and exegete it, but I want to use these texts in kind of a combination, um, well, kind of a combination talk mixed with a, a sermon. I do make a distinction between those two. Um, and it's all in hopes that uh, you will understand that I'm uh, passionate about what I'll talk about, and I also want to be honest, and I want to be a little provocative. Um, so if I shake up uh, a few of you and you say, jeez, uh, I didn't like that, then I've accomplished my purpose this morning, all right? Um, but I hope that through this, um, just like any sermon should be, that it's a sacrament through which the Word of God comes to you, a sacrament is simply uh, something visible or audible through which God's invisible grace comes to us. And even a sermon is a sacrament through which the Word of God comes to us. Um, I mean, if the Word of God isn't coming to you uh, every time Jen preaches a sermon, then I don't know what he's doing up here, um, because it's the Word of God that, that we should hear. So I hope that that happens this morning. And, and I begin with my concern, and my concern is, is about worship in the Christian church, particularly in, in America, uh, but especially um, where I got transplanted into Southern California the last oh, 11 years or so now. I grew up in Northern California, but that's a different state. Um, and, uh, and, and I see these, uh, this concern for worship that I have um, being uh, just uh, impressed upon me as I do go from place to place. One of my concerns is that we have, we have muddled and trivialized our worship of God in many, in many cases, in our, in our prevailing culture. Um, for instance, um, one of the things that really, ah, one of my pet peeves, is, is that oftentimes now you will hear people say, uh, well, first we're going to worship God, and, and then we're going to read Scripture and hear the sermon. As if... All of that isn't worship because we've reduced worship simply to the music. But worship involves everything, not only everything in what we do here, but everything in our lives. But when we gather together once a week for this purpose, um, it's all about worship. The sermon, the music, the prayers, the scripture, 
Uh, all of that is worship. And so we've kind of trivialized that. We've reduced it. And, and then we've even, we've even kind of trivialized our music sometimes. As shallow music will make shallow people. Um, that's, uh, we, and, and, and it's not just the music, but sometimes all the other stuff that I've seen in some of the worship um, has, has, is kind of like um, you know, wonder bread or spiritual junk food. You, know? we, uh, you, you can't have a good spiritual diet that way. So worship is so important. That's what I want to impress upon you today, that what we do as we gather together once a week. And by the way, I think what, part of what we're doing once a week when we gather together is, uh, is we're hearing God's story. We're hearing God's story of faithfulness to his people in the past so that we can be faithful during the rest of the week because you are the church 24-7, not just when you gather together here. You are the church 24-7. And when the benediction is given, that just means charge. Get out of here. And go be subversive agents for the kingdom of God in your neighborhoods, in your businesses, in your schools. And then you come back again next week and you share stories about how you got beat up. And, and then, or maybe some success stories. I shared the gospel with somebody and they, they saw the light. Um, and then you again hear stories of God's faithfulness to his people uh, through scripture especially, and you pray for one another, and then you're set to go out again and be the church all around the neighborhoods and businesses and schools. And then that, that means that uh, one of the things that worship shouldn't be divorced from is, is this grand story that we're part of, that we even sang about in one of the songs today. We're part of a larger story, a greater story. And we don't want to divorce worship from that greater story as well. It's not just about our little holy huddle here but it's about being part of a greater story. And, um, and, and also um, not to think of worship as just a program um, or, or just an experience for my benefit. Um, and, and another thing, we'll talk about all this stuff, but, but we don't want to divorce worship from memory. Memory, um, well, memory that this Bible uh, reminds us about events in God's life. We'll talk about that. So I have... There's all these concerns about what worship is and what worship should do and what worship's not doing. And, and that's what I want to share with you. One of the first things I want to do, and it actually, we, we, we sang about it in one of the, the songs this morning, is to recover the centrality in worship of the praise of God revealed in Christ. To recover the centrality of worship in the praise of God who is revealed in Jesus Christ. Um, in other words, the adoration of Jesus Christ should be central in our worship in a way that doesn't yield to, say, the wishes of our culture that surround us, that doesn't uh, try simply to be relevant to matters of taste, um, to keep it centered and focused on Christ, no matter what the matters of taste are, no matter whether that's relevant to the prevailing culture or not. That's why we read this story about David and, and Mikhail, um, because David isn't concerned with the cultural expectations. Mikhail is, she's articulating the cultural expectations. Why is the king going around dancing like this? And, and David says, look, I'm not dancing before you. My concern isn't how I dance before the culture. My concern is that I'm dancing before God. That's what I'm concerned about. I want to make sure that what I'm doing in worship, as David is saying, is, is appropriate to the God that I worship, regardless of what the culture around me thinks. 
Mikhail's thinking is about what the culture expects. David's thinking is about what the God he worships expects. He's only concerned about that. He's not even concerned about propriety, by the way. I mean, if it doesn't look good for the king to dance, who cares as long as God is happy with that? I mean, um, Mike, Mikkel's, uh, Mikhail's uh, concern is for his reputation. David's concern is not for his reputation. And even the Samaritan woman, you heard that? And she says, well, she's trying to divert attention, by the way, from herself by talking about the, culture of the, 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 the worship wars. She says, let's not talk about me and my, my, my men. Let's talk about uh, how we should worship, okay? Um, should, should we worship on your mountain or my mountain, you know? And Samaritans worshiped on Mount Gerizim, and they claimed that was where they should, people should worship. And, and the Jews were saying, we know we should worship in Jerusalem. And, and so she's going to divert attention. But, but she's also coming from that, you know, her Samaritan background, and she's just, you know, well, what, what's proper? What's for the place for proper worship? And, of course, Jesus corrects her and says proper worship isn't necessarily about the, the place that you do it. It's about whether you worship God according to the God you worship, who is spirit, and therefore we will worship in spirit and truth. Again, the same concern David had. The worship should be appropriate to the God you worship, regardless of what, where people think you should do it or how they think that you should go about doing it according to the cultural expectation. So that's the first thing, to recover the centrality of worship by focusing on the God revealed in Christ. That's what sets the tone for worship. It's got to be guided by God's self-disclosure, by who God has revealed God's self to be in Christ, also in Israel and in Scripture, who all focus in on Christ. If you have good feelings in worship, if you say, wow, I, I just felt so good today in worship, that's a byproduct. Worship isn't primarily to get us to feel a certain way. That's just a byproduct. And it might happen or it might not. Uh, the only indispensable activity of the Christian church, get this, the only indispensable activity of the Christian church is worship. If the church isn't worshiping, the church is not doing the one thing it cannot do without. In other words, our worship of Jesus Christ reorients us. It gets us oriented in the right direction. And, and it becomes the basis for all the other activity we do. So, for instance, as I said, when we leave worship today, it becomes the springboard for everything that you will do this week. It re refocuses you. It reorients you. It revitalizes you in a way that prepares you to go out and be the church as you leave. So um, uh, we, need, we need worship to really be focused in on the one whom we do worship so that that remains central throughout the week. And, and by the way, if our worship is centered in the God revealed in Jesus Christ and the God revealed in this scripture the God revealed in the story of Israel uh, that starts with Abraham who was given the promise that through your children all the nations will be blessed and then we get in on it as the church. Then our worship, all of it, has to be appropriate to all the nations that God wants to bring in. 
Um, I mean, you remember Jesus cleansing the temple? And Jesus said, my house was to be a house of prayer for all nations. And so this God who's centrally focused in Jesus Christ is meant to open up to all colors, races, ethnicities, nationalities, socioeconomic class, gender, and by the way, generations. That's why it's cool to see different generations in this service. One of my concerns is, is how can we preach the reconciliation of all in Jesus Christ if our worship services are simply generationally focused? We go out of here and tell the world, Jesus Christ reconciles all things to himself. And then we say, but we don't worship together. And the, church is, the world's going to say, well, you just talk a good talk, but you don't walk a walk. And, and so we need, we need blended worship. Um, that, and I think that's, that's even in our music. There's a woman named Marva Dawn who's written a really great book called Reaching Out Without Dumbing Down. Reaching Out Without Dumbing Down. It's about worship. Her second book about worship is titled A Royal Waste of Time. What we do here is a royal waste of time. Um, and Marva Dawn says, and she's a, she's a musician as well as a theologian, she says, our music ought to be blended. We ought to have, we ought to have jazz and country, and if you don't like that, uh, maybe some opera once in a while. Who knows? We ought to have all of this, you know, rock, all of it together. Um, sometimes I preach in San Diego at a friend's church, First Pres, downtown San Diego. And on Saturday night, they have a jazz vespers. The prelude is half an hour of jazz, really good jazz. And then that jazz is worked into the service. And they get a lot of homeless people there that, because they are downtown, but also the jazz that kind of brings them in. And um, so we ought to have all of that blended. During the, next, during, um, during the next half century, the critical centers of the Christian world are going to move decisively to Africa, Latin America, and Asia. By the year 2025... The projection is, is that 50% of the Christian population will be in Africa and Latin America by the year 2025. 50% of the world's Christian population will be in Africa and Latin America. The other 17% will be in Asia. Um, will pretty much be um, minority Christian fellowships here in the West, the United States and Britain and Europe and all that. So we've got to bring all of this to worship. And show people that, yes, this God is not just the God of one ethnicity, socioeconomic group, nationality, uh, color, uh, gender. This is the God of all people who is reconciling all things to Christ who is the center of our worship. And that's why it's so important to keep Christ the center. But then also, we've got to recover the mystery of worship. The mystery of worship. If Christ is the center, uh, we've got to recover the mystery of worship. God isn't just the object of worship. This is what I mean by this. God isn't just the object of worship. God is also the subject of worship. In other words, we're not just worshiping God today. God is using this worship to do something to us. God is the subject as well as the object of worship. Um, It's true. It's true that the audience in our worship today is God. Uh, not us. I mean, when you leave today, you ought to say, I did a great job worshiping today. I hope God is clapping. Right? Um, 
That's what it's meant. That, you know the word liturgy literally means the work of the people. Liturgy means the work of the people. Worship is work, not just for the folks doing it up here, but for all of us, so that when we leave, we say, I really worked at worship today. I, I really, I focused, I participated, I was in it, and God should be really happy. But there's also a sense in which God is the subject of worship right now. God is doing saving action. God is doing saving action as we read Scripture. God is doing saving action as we sing. God is doing saving action during the service. God is doing saving action as we pray and hear words of, of, of forgiveness and so forth. God is acting in the worshiping community in a saving and healing way. And, and, and it's, God is doing it as we recall and, and, and reenact God's history. Uh, and so that means if God is here doing stuff, we enter with fear and trembling. We don't just waltz in and say, well, God, aren't you happy? I'm here again today. Um, you're my chum old pal. You know, here I am. No, this is the God who when, there was, when nothing else existed, made something. This is the God who is the judge of all nations. This is the God who will save people. This is God who's not even in our category of being. There ought to be some sense of awe and reverence and mystery. What is God up to? What is God doing? How does God, well, how does God, how does God do this? How does God, in a saving way, uh, reach us through what we do in worship? Let me give you an example. I think, I think it has to do with the kind of thing that Paul is talking about in that 1 Corinthians passage. In 1 Corinthians where Paul is saying, I tradition to you what was traditioned to me, that I'm going to tell you about the Lord's Supper. Because that, that did become the central act in the early church, in the New Testament church, the Eucharist. And by the way, they didn't just, the Eucharist, which is a Greek word that means thanksgiving. Uh, we participated in the Thanksgiving Eucharist a couple of years ago, and I told the, the bishop who was leading us, it's redundant. Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving. The Eucharist is a Thanksgiving. But in that early church service, they also uh, participated in a whole meal. It wasn't just having the communion. It was a whole meal. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, by the way, um, there are some people getting ahead in the line. The rich folks are getting ahead in the line. You're forgetting that part of the meal here is for the poor so that they can go home with food. That's really what the church was doing. Um, and that's why I think Paul meant some are participating unworthily. But um, as, as they rehearsed the biblical story of Christ's passion, of Christ's death and resurrection, God would be working in, in the community. And, and one of my favorite stories of how God does that is from a book called Christianity Rediscovered. Christianity Rediscovered. There was an American Roman Catholic priest. His name was Vincent Donovan, who wrote this book, Christianity Rediscovered. And he tells the story of being sent in the late 1960s to, to evangelize the Maasai people in Tanzania. The Maasai people are uh, incredibly uh, amazing people, tall um, usually wear uh, red to scare off the lions. Um, I've, I've, when I've been in Kenya, I've seen them, and they're, they're amazing. They're in Kenya and Tanzania. So he went to Tanzania to minister to these people. 
And he describes how a series of communities came to grasp the significance of what God was going to do in the Eucharist and, and, and how this little piece of liturgy, this little piece of worship, began to shape their common life. How God used the worship, the liturgy, how God used it to, 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 to change the way that they saw everything. And here's how he wrote about this. Because at first it wasn't easy. He said, Maasai men had never eaten in the presence of Maasai women. In their minds, the status and condition of women were such that the very presence of women at the time of eating was enough to pollute any food that was present. How then was the Eucharist possible? If ever there was a need for the Eucharist as a saving sign of unity, it was here, he says, here in the Eucharist, we were at the heart of the unchanging gospel that I was passing on to them. They were free to accept the gospel or to reject it. But if they accepted it, they were accepting the truth that in the Eucharist there is neither slave nor free, neither Jew nor Greek, neither male nor female. Well, he tells the story. They came to accept it. It radically changed their lives. And now because men and women came together to eat the body and drink the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, they could go out from worship and begin to eat together at the table, men and women. The men now saw the women in a new way and as a result treated them differently. God works in mysterious ways in and through our worship to change us, to heal us, to save us. There's a lot of mystery going on when you guys meet week after week in worship. Recover something of the awe, the mystery of what's going on right here. That's, for example, why we don't want things like, things like worship music to be shallow. Uh, because, because when we sing and internalize a praise song, when we sing or internalize a hymn, we're being shaped to see the world Christianly. There was an arch-heretic in the early, well, in the 4th century, in the early 300s. His name was Arius. He did not believe that God was a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He believed that God was God and Jesus was a creature who was elevated, promoted, divine status. So he, he preached a heresy that the church had to combat. And one of the ways that he communicated his heresy was in little songs. He put his heresy to little tunes so that it got in people's heads. I'm a, forgive me, um, uh, I'm a Seinfeld fan, all right? So, and one of the episodes, if you watch Seinfeld, I've got them all memorized, but one of them is, uh, is, is where George Costanza is trying to get a, a date with a woman, and so he starts getting into her head by singing Costanza. Aha, some of you know this one. And, uh, and, and it does, it gets into her head. Well, that's what Arius was doing. He said, I'm going to get my heresy into your head and I'm going to do it through music. That's why music is important in our worship. Because what we proclaim in the music gets into our head. You, in the week, some praise song or hymn that you sang in worship Sunday, it's in your head. And that's why it's so important that that not be shallow either, that that has to be so deep and filled with meaning that it gets into us. And, and, and shapes us, and God uses it. 
So, we recover the centrality of worship of the God revealed in Christ. We recover the centrality, we recover the mystery of worship as God works in worship to change us. And then, let's recover a liturgical worship service that connects the present day church with the ancient church. In other words, if we can recover a liturgical worship service that connects the present day church with the ancient church, we'll begin to see that we're participating as a community in a narrative, a story that is, goes much, much farther in the past and into the future than right here. In other words, you and I are people of space and time. We're in this space at this time. But because of that, we also are part of a larger space and time that for the church goes back 2,000 years and that covers the entire world. And, And if we recover liturgical worship, we have a way of reminding ourselves that we're part of a greater story that we sang about. We, in other words, um, we're, we, in worship we can move ourselves into this narrative into which actually we've been baptized. You know, when you're baptized, it's not just a sign that you have become a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's also a baptism into a new relationship with all these people in the church. In other words, baptism is a baptism into the death and resurrection of Christ, Romans 6. But it's also a baptism into a new fellowship. And so we become part of that. And the fellowship includes people who've died and gone before us. One of my favorite hymns is The Church's One Foundation. And I love it when we get to the line that we are in mystical sweet communion with those whose rest is one. We're worshiping right now, not just with people you see but with people you can't see who have died and gone on to what we call the church triumphant. We're the church militant, still fighting the battles on this earth. But there are those who have won their rest, part of the church triumphant, and right now they're worshiping with us. By the way, have some of you gone to the L.A. Cathedral, downtown L.A., the cathedral? Yeah, yeah. Do you remember going into there and looking on the sides inside? What do you see, the tapestries? Remember that? Yeah. It's so amazing. They have tapestries of people, right? And there are saints who have gone before us that are labeled St. Anselm, St. Augustine, St. Francis, uh, St. Hildegard. But also people of just, you know, mixed races and ages, you know, contemporaries. And you remember how they're looking? They're all looking forward, right? So that when you sit in the pew and you look around, you see people all around the world and people who have come before us worshiping with you all looking forward at the table where the Lord's body and blood are going to be set. That's what we're doing here. Um, That's part of the mystery here. And so we recover that. And that's what Paul's doing. That's why we read uh, the familiar passage in 1 Corinthians 11. Paul literally says this, I tradition to you what was tradition to me. In other words, Paul got a set of words that he's memorized. He didn't make those up that on the night when Jesus was betrayed, and all, you know, and that we hear again in communion 2,000 years later because we keep traditioning this stuff. By the way, there's a difference between traditionalism and tradition. Tradition is, is, is the living faith of dead people. All right? Tradition is the living faith of dead people. Traditionalism is the dead faith of living people. All right? All right? That's traditionalism. 
the dead faith of living people. But tradition is passing on a living faith, those who have died and gone before us. We need to recover that in our liturgy. And, and that's, that's a lot about what liturgy is when you think about liturgical worship. Liturgical worship has symbols and, 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 and uh, well, sometimes temples and, and saints and all that kind of thing. Here's the best way, I think, to get, get at the point I'm trying to get at. We have liturgies all around us. One recent author, a guy named Jamie Smith, says, there's even a liturgy in the mall. You go in the mall, and there's a whole liturgy. You walk into this temple, right? It's this huge, massive temple with a big parking lot around it, you know. And, and there are little side temples that you wander into called stores. And they, they, they kind of beckon you in sometimes because they have statues. They're called mannequins. And these mannequins... They're, they're, they're telling you what kind of person you can become if you just dress like this, right? Um, what kind of person you can become if you, have, if you buy this. And, and so you're, 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 you're tempted to go in, and, and you go in, and, and, and maybe you find objects to purchase. And so you, you take one off the shelf, and you go up to the, to the priest who is at the altar. And lay down your, your offering, right, in order to, to receive back a gift, right, for this offering. And there's a little liturgical, liturgical thing that goes back and forth, you know. You say, I would like to buy this. And the person liturgically gives you this information about what this would cost you. And, and so you lay it down. And then after you've completed this purchase, this priest says, perhaps, thank you for shopping with us. And you take your gift and carry it home, right? It's, and and we, we do this at Starbucks. There's a whole liturgy there. You have to actually learn the language because Starbucks won't, you know, maybe the first time you go in and you order a small coffee, they know what you mean. But after you've been there a couple of times, you learn the language of Starbucks, the liturgical language. You know that a small isn't a small, it's a tall, right? And if you want a really big coffee, you order a venti. I have no idea what that word means. It just means a big, big coffee, right? Right? I think it's like 20 ounces of hot drink, you know? So, all right? And if you're really good at the Starbucks liturgy, you will actually order your drink in the order of ingredients. That, you know, right? The latte, skinny, you know, whatever, whatever. You know? And they will know. And they will actually call you to the altar and name you by name, right? Right? By the way, try something. If they ask your name, sometimes just say me. And then they'll say, you know, I have a tall, skinny latte for me. You know, and that's you. So you go up. Anyway, but you, you learn it. And if you get really good at this, they will hire you. And you will become a priest, knowing the, all the liturgical you know, names, right? And so there's a liturgy you learn. Um, why is the church, by the way, dumbing down its language when Starbucks never dumbs down the language for you? You have to learn their language. We in the church have a language, too, when we try to teach people. I see the liturgy when I go to the Angels game. Because at the beginning, yeah, the guy says, please stand for the National Anthem, but we all know what's going to happen when the National Anthem, it doesn't have to tell us to stand. There's a liturgy. We learn. We stand. We look in the same direction. And we do this. And I have no idea why we do this. Do you? I don't know. I don't know why we do this. What? Put my hand over my you know, left breast. I don't know why. All right? So I don't know. And I want you to think about that. Um, 
uh, a second-generation church that's been enculturated as Americans. How did you get that way? Think about it. Think about it. You, you, I was enculturated the same way. We had symbols, not a cross, a flag. And another symbol was an eagle. And then there were temples. Maybe some of you have visited a temple. I have. The Washington Monument, the Lincoln Memorial, the White House, the Capitol Building. These are temples. They're sacred. We have hymns. The National Anthem, God Bless America, America's Beauty. These are hymns. We have saints. Yeah, we have saints. George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Martin Luther King Jr. And they even have saints' days. President's Day and Martin Luther King Jr. Day. We have scripture. The Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States. Those are scripture. You don't cross those. And they are invoked many times. Some people know them by heart. And then we have, uh, we, we, we have uh, holy days. July 4th, Memorial Day, Veterans Day, coming around the corner tomorrow. And we have gestures, like our hand over our heart when we pledge allegiance. Um, we have all of this going on. The same kind of stuff that the church has in its liturgical worship. To enculturate us to become Americans. That's the purpose of these. It works better than a lecture. It works better than a sermon. And, there's, and that's what we're to be doing in the church. That's what I'm talking about with recovering liturgical worship. Because all of that stuff we do in the United States connects us to the past. It connects us to what's gone before. And it says, you too can become part of this history. Church, that's what we should be doing in worship. With symbols, with, with temples, with, with saints, and remembering saints' days, and, and with gestures. Not this, but the church that I worship in, some people do this. It reminds us we're cross people. We're Jesus people. Why give that up? It's not Catholic, by the way. It's just a Christian gesture, just like this is an American gesture. And so um, we, we are shaped more by these liturgical uh, actions in the mall, in, 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 um, in, in the nation, in Starbucks than we are by the church. Why have we left these influencers behind in the church? and given them over to the culture. Madison Avenue knows this, that we're influenced by these symbols that speak to our desires. Why hasn't the church done this? The symbol of the crucifix. And by the way, I mean, I grew up Protestant, and we said, we got, a, we got an empty cross, because we, we don't believe Jesus is still hanging on the cross. We believe in the resurrection. That's good, okay. But there's nothing wrong with a crucifix because we also worship the God who bled on the cross and by the way in our culture there's a lot of celebrities that wear crosses around their neck that I don't think have any intention of being disciples of Jesus notice they don't wear crucifixes why? because a cross is ambiguous sometimes but not a crucifix don't give it up so pass down the hymns pass down the symbols Celebrate the saints' days. Celebrate the holy days, not just Christmas and Easter. I'll mention some more in a minute. Um, and, and don't be ashamed of the gestures, whether it's kneeling or crossing or whatever. 
Those are good things. Liturgical worship. And that brings me to the last uh, emphasis I think we need. Recover the liturgical calendar. This may be a new idea for some of you. Recover the church year. We're shaped by the secular calendar. I don't know if you know where it comes from, but all the names of the months come from Greek, Roman gods, and um, emperors. January comes from the god Janus. And the reason we have New Year's Day on January 1st is because ancient world, they celebrated the beginning of the year in memory of Janus, the god, on the first day of Janus's month. August is named after Augustus Caesar. Um, July, Julius Caesar. All of the months come from pagan deities and emperors. Nothing wrong with that in a sense, but, but that calendar shapes us more than the church calendar. In the church, in the Western Christian church, New Year's Day is the first Sunday of Advent, four weeks before Christmas, not January 1st. Um, go ahead, celebrate the pagan New Year's, that's fine, all right. But their church has a New Year's Day too. We have a whole calendar, and this calendar's been shaped. The school calendar sometimes is what, is what shapes us too, right? Have some water or something, uh, Jen, or something. But there's a, um, we revisit the calendar every year, right? September, early September, New Year. January 1st, New Year. First Sunday of Advent, New Year. Why have a church calendar? Why get into that? Well, I think part of it is it reminds us of the great story we're in. Because it brings us around that story again. I mean, think of the American calendar again. Why, why have July 4th and Memorial Day and all that? Oh, thank you so much. Water's okay, so and I can sprinkle all of you too. Because I was Presbyterian for a long time, so before I was Baptist. But then I have to dunk you, so anyway. But it reminds us of the... Um, it reminds us of this great story that we're part of. The, one of the reasons we have a, a national calendar that goes through July 4th, Memorial Day and all that, is so that we will reenact the American story every year. Every year. One of the reasons the church has a calendar is so that we reenact the story, God's story, every year. It begins with Advent because that's when we remember it, the Old Testament in Israel waiting for her Messiah. So during Advent... We revisit, we relive the waiting, the waiting. That's what Advent means, to wait. We wait. And then the Messiah comes, Christmas. Oh, that's so good. And then we have Epiphany. That's on January 6th. That's that's what the 12 days of Christmas is about, by the way. The 25th to the 6th. And Epiphany is when we remember two things. The wise men who came, because they didn't come at the birth, they came later. The wise men who came, they were Gentiles. And epiphany means the light of the world has now gone beyond Israel. And then we also remember the baptism of Jesus on January 6th. And now we are into the story of Jesus. And, and that takes us uh, a few months along, including Lent. And during Lent, we, we revisit the Gospels and we remember what kind of sinners we are and how in need of grace we are. And then we hit that Palm Sunday, you know, and, and we're entering into the Holy Week, the last week of Christ's life on uh, before his death and resurrection. And, and we end that week with, the, 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 well, Maundy Thursday, if you ever do that. That's Thursday before Good Friday when we celebrate, observe the Last Supper. And then Good Friday. And then Holy Saturday is a day of quiet and silence. Jesus is in the grave. 
And a lot of us are losing hope. And then Easter. Hope's restored. And in the liturgical calendar, Eastertide isn't just Sunday. It goes on for weeks. Easter is celebrated. And, and, and along the way, you have Ascension Day every Thursday, 40 days. It's, every, it's a Thursday every year, 40 days after Easter. You should celebrate that. Easter, Easter just gets you the, the dead guy raised, okay? He's just walking around, all right? He needs to be ascended as Lord. That's 40 days later, and that's the Ascension. And then 10 days later, Pentecost, the Spirit comes down, and we celebrate that. And, we, and then we go through the, the rest of the church year. We have Trinity Sunday after Pentecost, because now we've met the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in our lives. And then once Advent comes around again, and we rehearse the story over and over, and it gets in us. So the church calendar will help us to recover this great story we're part of. And, 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 and by the way, it also connects the story of Jesus to the story of Israel. Because how often do we connect those two? But I'll tell you what. Jesus didn't just die so you and I would be forgiven of our sins. Jesus' death was the solution to Israel's problem. And if you don't understand what Israel's problem was from the Old Testament, you really won't understand all that Jesus was about. Check out all of the sermons in Acts someday. Just go through Acts and read all of the sermons. They don't just start with, well, Jesus died so that you can have you know, forgiveness and, and, and go to heaven when you die. No. The sermons are telling the story of Israel and how Israel failed to keep God's covenant and then along comes the only faithful Israelite, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He keeps the covenant, but he also takes the penalty for breaking the covenant so that the covenant can now proceed and all the nations can be blessed, just as God made a covenant with Abraham in the very beginning. It's about a lot more than just my forgiveness. And so keeping the story alive through the calendar, and by the way, that's why we did all these readings today, uh, the lectionary, which is reading the Old Testament, the Gospel, and the Epistle, and a Psalm, we did today, um, is what a lot of churches do. A lot of liturgical churches have a lot more scripture in them than most evangelical churches every Sunday. But it connects the Old Testament to the New Testament every Sunday. And we remember Jesus, he wasn't even a Christian. He was a Jew. <laughs> right? Yeah, it comes as a surprise to many people, you know? <laughs> Jesus wasn't a Christian, he was a Jew. And it connects us together, this calendar. One other thing, by the way, we remember all the essential Christian beliefs with a calendar because that's what Christmas and Easter and Epiphany and, and, and Ascension Day and all of that brings back to mind all of the important Christian beliefs about the Holy Spirit and the Incarnation and the Crucifixion and the Resurrection and the Ascension of the Lord and all of that comes together. And... I want to tell you, uh, as I'm kind of drawing near the end here, but I want to tell you how this, one other thing this helps you with. It will introduce you to a lot of folks that you don't know yet. Uh, that's what it does for me. We have, a, we have a calendar, a church calendar that hangs by a refrigerator. We buy a new one every year. The new ones actually for next year just came in the mail yesterday. We get them from um, a group that is located in Chicago, the greatest city in the States, and um, near Wheaton. And, uh, and that, that calendar hangs by a refrigerator, and every day they have a list of maybe two, three, or four, sometimes five people who died on that day 
Because that's what the church remembered, their death date, not their birth date, their graduation date, death, graduation to a new reality. And, and it reminds us of people, I don't even know half those names, but they're people who made it possible for me to be here with you today. They made it possible for you to be here. Because if the church hadn't given its life for us, for the gospel, handing on the scriptures faithfully, passing down the message of the good news, you and I wouldn't be here. And so I get reminded of these guys through this liturgical calendar. And I say, whoa. And some days I do remember, I do know, oh, I, I know those guys. Or sometimes it's a whole group of martyrs. And I, then I can thank God for those folks who gave their life. I mean, let's face it. You should rather die for the church than for the nation. If it came down to a choice, it's the church you die for. This is your first family. I mean, look around. You're going to be stuck with these people for eternity. You might as well get used to it now, right? right? These are your brothers and sisters. Yeah, biologically, the kids you had, you know, or the parents you had, you know, I'm sure God, I'm sure God helped plan that, you know, but it's still kind of an accident, you know what I mean? But this is choice. You are with these people for eternity. And the whole before you. And you'll rejoice. And so, um, you know, in Acts, what does it mean? What do these stones mean? That's what the literal calendar does. So when I look at the day and see these names, these they mean a lot. Recover centrality of a lot. So we recover the centrality of worship in the God revealed in Christ. Recover the mystery of worship. All this reverence for a God who's actually doing things to us while we worship Him. And we recover this grand story that we're in with the symbols and the liturgy, the liturgical worship. And then we recover the, the calendar, the church's calendar that enriches. And all of this is helping us to see the world the way God wants us to see the world. Because, look, believing is seeing. Believing is seeing. You will see what you come to believe. And all of this will shape us to be the kind of people who see the world the way God wants us to see it. And it will help us to become a parallel alternative culture because the church should be another culture and show the world how to live a different way. That we don't beat each other up when we have differences. We seek reconciliation in Christ. That's just one way we can be a different kind of culture. And so um, we do this. We're shaped by worship to be these kind of people. Um, I would encourage you to continue to think about these things and, 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 and so that you'll exhibit the fruit of the Spirit. You'll love your neighbors. You'll pray for your enemies. You'll bless those who persecute you. You'll, you, you, you'll, you'll, you'll care for orphans and widows. And, and all of this is being shaped by our worship in different ways that I've mentioned. Don't forget, during this week, you're going to be shaped by liturgies, whether it's the mall, the sports industrial complex, Starbucks. But I hope the number one shaper, liturgical shaper, worship shaper in your life this week and every week will be the worship that you engage in here and then throughout the week with the calendar, with, with remembering the saints,
reading scripture and remembering yourself with the stories of those who've gone before us so that um, our vision of the world will be different and we will live and act in this world in a way that really shows people there is a greater story and you and I have been baptized into it. Let me pray for you and um, before we go on, let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you that you have invited us to be part of this grand story, this greater story. Thank you that uh, you have invited us to be baptized into a community of people who have a long history, uh, people who have made it possible for us to be here today. I pray for all of us that we'll continue to be shaped by our worship of you as you revealed yourself in Christ and in the history of Israel that we will remember that uh, you mysteriously present yourself to us and work in in and through our worship to change us and heal us and save us. I pray for all of us that we will recall uh, the great events in the past, but also um, that we will continue to be shaped by the gestures and the the holy days and the saints and and the symbols that you've given us that you work in and through our lives. And I pray for all of this, not that it will serve us, but that it will serve you and your kingdom. So that one day, when we are sitting at a great banquet feast, and we see Jesus face to face as the host of this banquet table, we all will rejoice, all these people down through the centuries, and we'll swap our stories and declare how we've been faithful to you, and then celebrate what you have done for all the nations that you determined to bless through your children. And we do pray this in the name of the one you sent and who is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.